My favorite movies ever made are independent films, and uh, a lot of them are crime films. I don't know what it is about that genre that continuously brings me back, but crime movies have shaped a lot of my career, have shaped a lot of what I love in movies and comics and in pop culture. Uh, you know, some of the best, most stimulating cinema has come from directors like Martin Scorsese, Quentin Tarantino. But even go back further to Sam Peckinpah, you go back and you look at the old days of uh, John Ford and even Kurosawa doing his crime films. Uh, there's something about movies with characters that have decided to risk it all, to take on that chance and have to deal with the repercussions. How does one character react with a simple decision when faced with the end of his life, the destruction of his family? Uh, the end of it all. I've always loved crime films and crime cinema. And for those of you who don't know, you are now listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? What is going on? What is new? Uh, today's episode is a celebration in crime cinema. Today's episode is about celebrating independent film. How do you get a movie made? How do you get movie off the ground and put it together how do you cast a film um, and then once you do cast a film what is the process for you like are you someone that is prepping shot lists are you someone deep into production design prep or are you doing lots of rehearsals with your talent and actors i'm always curious about other directors processes and that's what i like about this show i take full fucking advantage of it on this show i like sitting down with other directors because it's a rare thing and the director gets to sit with the director and sort of share beliefs, maybe share a little bit of experience, and make each other better in one way or another. And today's episode is a great one. Today, I sit down with Cameron Von Hoy, and Cameron has recently finished his first feature film, uh, Flinch, which is a crime film uh, about a hitman who develops feelings for the witness of a murder that he commits. I'm excited about this movie. I haven't seen it yet. I'm just like you guys. I've only seen the trailers. I've only seen all the supporting footage from this. And I'll give you full transparency. I heard about it because I am a, a fan of your mom's house. And Tom Segura and Christina 
and Tom is in this movie, and he had the director on his show briefly, and I try not to watch that interview. I just watched a bunch of the supporting stuff because I hate uh, listening to interviews of people that I'm going to have on my show. I don't want it to influence my interviews, but I was excited about it. I was pumped. What kind of madman would hire Tom to be in a crime movie? Uh, so that's what got me hooked, and I did a bit of research, and the movie looks like it's going to be fucking killer, man. It's got an insane cast. Uh, an insane cast. And if you go to IMDb and check it out, go look at Flinch, the lead Daniel. Daniel was in It Follows and Don't Breathe. You've got David Provol, who was uh, Richie April from The Sopranos. He's in it. Uh, Kathy Moriarty, who was uh, the wife in Ranging Bull. I mean, Academy. I, think, I don't know if she won the Academy Award for that or she was just nominated for that. But holy shit. Like, the list goes on and on for the people in this movie and where they come from. All the crime films, the amazing sort of ground-shaking crime material that has shaped American cinema. And he has rounded up a bunch of these actors uh, for his piece, for his first feature film, which is pretty cool. Very exciting. I can't wait to get into it with him. And I just want to take a second and thank all of you loyal listeners for uh, continuing to support the show by visiting me on Instagram at Mike Petchy or the podcast In Love With The Process pod on Instagram. That's In Love With The Process, P-O-D. Um, you guys have been sending me great feedback on the shows. I'm going to do this again. Do me a favor. Just give us a writing. Write a review. Now, you can write a review in a bunch of different places. I prefer it if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you scroll down, so if you go to the main uh, podcast episodes page, scroll down, and it's going to seem like you're going to have to scroll through like almost 200 episodes. You won't. It'll eventually land at the end and it'll say reviews. Leave me a review, however many stars that you feel are worth all my time and energy. <laughs> uh, and then let me know what you think. I've been getting stellar reviews of the show, which is great. I've got one negative review on Apple Podcasts. I notice them. I see it. I, I see your I see your input. It's really great. If you're curious, you can scroll down and uh, agree or disagree with this review. Um, but uh, every time you leave a review, positive or negative, it helps the show. Really. It somehow locks it to the algorithms so the people, more people hear about the show, the more people that listen to the show, the better the guests are, the better the conversations are, the more influence that I get to have over who is on the show. So please leave a review, support us. And if you don't listen on those mediums, then just leave me a review on Instagram. Send me a note. Uh, you'll notice that I repost all your reviews all the time. What is that noise? What is that sound? Sounds like a fucking dinosaur. <laughs> ah, the joys of recording in my house during COVID. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks for doing that. And if you uh, are a newcomer to the show, maybe you're just coming over because you love the film and you want to hear what the director was thinking uh, and you want to listen to more episodes of the show, head on over to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There we've curated all of our episodes based upon subject material. So if you just want to listen to episodes with directors, we have a pretty great catalog of directors that have been on the show. Um, but the show is sort of blowing up 
So we have our new music section, which talks to musicians, talks to people that are in the music industry. Uh, we have artists, we have, uh, like I have firefighters on the show, all sorts of strange jobs. Um, and I just, I think the show is really sort of morphing, which I love. It will always have the blood of a filmmaking show. It will always have that. But the more I talk to filmmakers, uh, the more I start to understand that it's about life, right? It's about the life experiences that shape us, that help us tell stories. And then I realized, well, maybe I should start talking to some of these people that influence us as filmmakers. And that influenced me as filmmaker, as a filmmaker. You know, obviously not someone that knows how to use the English language, but other than that, yes. Um, and so the show's just sort of blown up a bit. You don't know what I'm talking about? Head on over to inlovewiththeprocess.com and check it out. You'll see everything you need to see. And while you're listening to today's episode, it's a great place to go. And you'll see on our splash page, we do a really good job of like doing all sorts of releases with like moving video backgrounds and stuff. It's a lot of fun to look at. Um, but if you click on this episode, I'll have all the links for the trailers. I'll have all sorts of stuff listed there. So you'll be able to get all the resources you need. So I'm sure I'll be digging up all of the movie reference trailers that we talk about on the show. And we talk about a bunch today. Like if you are someone that loves crime movies, maybe you're just dipping your toes into Martin Scorsese's landscape. Maybe you're a Nicholas Refn fan. And you're like, his stuff is so crazy and so strange. Would you like to know where he's got all his ideas from? We are going to talk a lot about the origins of crime and cinema in such a way that sort of stems from our favorite films, from both my favorite films and Cameron's favorite films. And we're talking beyond American cinema here. We're getting into Hong Kong action cinema. We're getting into Japanese noir again. So there's a bunch of great references in the show. So make sure... Yeah, grab a pen and piece of paper and write down, try to catch what it is that we're talking about and make a list of movies that you want to see. And if specifically, maybe I should make my own list. Let me know. Do you guys want to have a list from me? Do you guys want a list of crime movies to watch, like my favorite crime films? Drop me a note on Instagram and let me know. All right. Well, let's not draw it out, right? Let's take my negative review to heart on today's episode. Let's get to the point. <laughs> so you know the deal strap yourselves in turn up those noise canceling headphones sit back and relax and join me on a voyage into the world of crime cinema on the brand new episode of in love with the process Cameron, thanks for being on the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, I'm excited to talk with you today. I'm pumped about uh, your new movie. I am uh, obviously I'm an old school crime movie fan, and I think the thing that sort of perked my interest the most about your film is the casting. I mean, you have such an, a phenomenal cast in this movie. A lot of like uh, well seasoned. Uh, actors from some of the best movies, some of the best crime movies in cinema. So pumped to talk to you about all that stuff. Yeah. Um, thank you. They are awesome. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> for those that uh, don't know uh, your work, um, can you, let's just start from the beginning. How did you 
get started in film? It looks like you're, you've also spent time in front of the camera as well, right? Yeah, I started acting at a very young age uh, and I worked professionally as a kid. Mm -hmm. And I studied acting, um, and then I was pursuing acting and filmmaking, going to film school, and, and then just – I mean, I always wanted to make films as well from a kid. I had a video camera, but I was working as a kid, and then like you know, like in my early 20s, I was still working, and then I got kind of just like moved really just into filmmaking um, solely, and now I've been there, and I started – producing and writing first and uh then i just directed my first film flinch yeah man congratulations by the way on that that's such a huge step uh, getting you. that first one in the can i'm i'm like a hair behind you trying to get mine down in the can and it's it's a fucking hurdle so congratulations <laughs> for getting over it man it is uh, so <clears throat> so you started as a child actor is that what you were saying <clears throat> yes yeah i did what was that? What was that? I've always liked, I'm always fascinated with that because, uh, you know, I've done enough commercials where I've worked with child actors and kids and, and it's so surprising to me how professional young kids are and how quickly they sort of wrap their head around how the business works. Um, was it, was it a good experience for you? Was it a bad experience for you? I mean, it was a great experience. I loved acting. I was acting in community theater. I would act after school, after school theater, uh, in school, I was in the theater department. I had a video camera and I was always making – I just loved it. I loved putting on a show. I loved creating characters. Um, I loved performing. I loved it. So to come to L.A. – I was in San Diego as a kid. So to come up to L.A. Mm -hmm. and do it with like you know cameras and crews and all that was – it was a blast. <laughs> um, yeah. Rad, man. And then – um, then you did, uh, I saw that you very similar to my, myself in my career. I saw that you were doing a bunch of shorts first and sort of, we just trying to find your voice and find yourself technically before you got into a feature. Yeah. I mean, I'm still trying to find my voice. I think we're all always trying to find our voice. Yeah. Um, but I certainly was really taking some bold swings early on in the pursuit of finding my voice. And when I was out here in LA, you know, I had, I had done some films, some feature films that I produced and wrote um, and acted in. And I was doing these movies and I also decided to start making some short films for YouTube. Mm -hmm. uh, I think actually it started with one thing. I, I had this idea to do a spoof comedy of Taken because I saw the Taken 2 trailer <laughs> and I, and, and they were like, you know, like, I forget what it was, but you're, you know, some, something else is about to be taken. And I was just like, Oh my God, this is a joke. <laughs> you know, like this is totally a joke. And I got this idea for Taken 3, what that might look like. And I decided to make it as a short and put it on YouTube um, so I wrote it and I didn't direct it. I brought a buddy of mine in to direct it. I was really apprehensive about directing. I had even written, produced, acted in these early films that I had been making feature length. And, uh, even those, I didn't want to direct them. All right. I just didn't feel like I wanted to direct yet. I think cause I was finding my voice mm -hmm. and I wanted to work behind other directors and with other directors, but not be the director. Mm -hmm. So 
So even I did that with the short, so I produced and wrote it and it ended up getting like a ton of views going viral, right? <laughs> it was early YouTube days and it, went, it was on the front page of Funny or Die, got like millions of views on the internet. And from that, I was able to get the money to make it into a feature length film nice, and a, and a decent amount of money. Um, and that was a whole experience you know, then making the movie because you know, okay, I'm going to produce this movie with the financiers and write the movie. Uh, but again, I didn't want to direct the movie. I wanted to bring in another director. And it was kind of hard to find a director for that movie at the time for whatever reasons. Hmm. Uh, and we probably, I mean, we definitely made some bad choices in my opinion because I didn't, I didn't like the director that they brought on, right? The financiers brought on this guy who – was just an asshole <laughs> to be honest <laughs> with you. And it was, it was one of those situations where like, it's like a Hollywood situation where I had written this thing, produced this thing and then completely had it taken away from me. Script changed. Everything changed. Had no say, um, fighting against it. You know, I remember sending an email, like, I mean, leading up to the production, I was just like new cause the guy was, being just like just such a prick and i just saw the script had changed and like i'm fighting against everything this is the stupid ending i'm like what the hell you know but i had no voice mm -hmm. no power mm -hmm. to have to have any say in it from that point you know like i just had no power um and uh and it was it just was very frustrating so i went through that process and i learned a lot um i learned a lot on that how do you how do you think something like that happens? Is it just a lack of communication that comes between you and the financier? Or is it, is it a sense of desperation where the people that are putting the money up are like, look, I'm going to find this director and, and let him do whatever the fuck he wants because he knows what's going on? Like, how do you think you got into that scenario? You know, the weird thing is, is like nobody's trying to make a bad movie ever. Yeah. You know, there's no, one, no one involved in the process wants to make something bad. Yeah. Um, but... It happens every day, and I think it happens. I don't know. I don't know exactly. I mean, look, I don't know exactly why it happens, but in that instance, the dude who made the thing that at least got traction on a viral level with audiences had his voice snuffed out completely <laughs> from the process of making the feature-length version of it. So they got a version of something made by somebody else completely. I don't like what that other person did with it. And I didn't like it along the process. And also I probably was, you know, young enough and early enough in my career where, I mean, I, I fought, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say that maybe I didn't stand up enough, but that's really not true because I fought, like I was sending emails and getting emails sent back to me being told I wouldn't be allowed on set. And like, I was, I was, I was rattling the cages, you know what I mean? Like, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like they weren't trying to make a bad movie. They just put their faith in the wrong person. And there's lots of reasons why, you know, like you might put your faith in the wrong people at certain times. Cause you're, you know, you want to make the right decision. And, and the dude had made more movies than me at that point. That's for sure. Um, and then as far as the director, I don't know. I think he was trying his best. I mean, he's got, he's got, some things to learn about life and the way to deal with people. And I mean, I, you know, there's a million reasons why something doesn't come out right. <laughs> yeah. Right. But, uh, I don't mean to like vent about the situation, no, it's but all good, man. it happened. And, um, 
it was, you know, it was an experience. Well, it must have, it must have acted as a motivator for you at that point too. Like, uh, well, well, it did. Yeah, it yeah. did. It motivated me very much. It motivated me to go make the next movie that I made, which was a comedy, but a dark comedy, Tragedy Girls. And I, I actually came out of uh, Tuckin, you know, super disheartened and just like, you know, really saying to myself, like, what the hell did I come to L.A. to make movies for? You know, like, yeah. I, I didn't come here to do that. You know, that's not what I, what I'm like my, you know, you put your blood and you put your life into this game of yeah. making films, you yeah. know, nothing short of it. If you really want to have a shot. And, uh, so I had that moment of like, well, what the hell? Like I didn't come here to do that nonsense play around in that way. And, um, yeah, so I had a mantra going into making my next movie, which was do not compromise fight to make it great and i i i felt like i knew how to make a good movie at the point you yeah know? even though yeah. i hadn't really done it yet, i was like i know how to make a good movie um so that was my mantra going into the second one and and i really really tried to align myself with every step of the way not compromising and and of course like you compromise for the right reasons right. you know like and i was again producing and i had a director who i believed in in that movie um and a script that I liked and, you know, made changes and worked on it, of course, but like it was a good script and a good director. And so every step of the way from casting to editing, I was just fighting to make the thing great, make the right choices along the way, support the director, support the vision, mm-hmm. etc. you know, mm-hmm. and it shows in the movie. I did that. Everyone involved did that. Um, and, and, and I, I also did that on Flinch. Yeah, it's fascinating because, you know, I talk to a lot of directors on the show and I think a lot of the people listening to the show are trying to figure out how to either make a movie or how to to get further in in their career. And and this comes up a lot where it's, is this game on compromise and what compromise means? And when you say uh, I didn't compromise, it's I think we should dig into that a bit deeper because it isn't. At least I hope it wasn't you just sort of being like, this is my vision and everybody else can fuck off. It's it's more just uh, what sort of being firm with what you think is the right way to do stuff. Like explain your compromising and, and not compromising. Well, look, you can't be an asshole, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it's be true. like, like you can't. It's not it's not coming from a place of you can't come from a place of ego. And that's hard. It's hard for an artist because there's a lot of ego involved in making art. Um, but you can't come from that place. You got to come from the place of, I'm trying to make a movie for other people, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you got to surround yourself with people that are great, people that you trust, people that are better than you. And you got to trust them and you have to work with them and lean on them. And you have to roll with the punches and you have to compromise, but you kind of compromise against the elements of life, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, you got, you got to compromise against your budget, against the weather, against <laughs> everyone's energy and your own personal health mm-hmm. uh, and your resources and stuff like that. But you got to fight as long and as hard as you can to get everything that you think you need to tell the story that you're trying to tell. And also like trust in your voice and your vision 
I mean, look, it's so nuanced. If we could really, if I could put words on it, I'd, uh-huh. maybe I'd write a book, but um, <laughs> it's hard to describe. But yeah, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting line to toe because you can't, you can't be like, it's not about lunacy, which, you know, can happen where you're like just being a maniac. But you got to be, Look, it's hard to make a movie, especially on the, these levels, like independent film. So you just have to fight for what you're trying to do, you know? Yeah, no, and it's nice to hear because you, you're you're saying a lot of the same things that I would say. You're saying a lot of the same things that other guests have said on the show. Uh, and it's actually a great barometer when I have a conversation with, with someone for the first time because when you answer the question the way you answer the question, then it's obvious that you have been through the trenches. It's obvious that you understand the power of collaboration um, and you know, there's, it's a fucking miracle to have a movie get greenlit and it's a fucking miracle to find financing for a movie. Um, and then just because you do, doesn't mean the movie's going to turn out great. And so it's, it's such a crapshoot, um, and such a risk, uh, that, that we live with as directors, we live with every day. <laughs> it's like trying to, it's like raising a, a kid in a Petri dish, you know what I mean? And hoping that it has all its arms and legs when it finally yeah. gets older, you know? You got to leave it all on the table. Uh, that's that's so true. Um, I was close with uh, this gentleman who was a great actor, Martin Landau. Oh, yeah. And he was a good friend of mine and a mentor of mine. And I remember he would say, in regards to acting and writing, he would always say, I work on it until they take it away from me. <laughs> you know, like he would always treat, he said, I always treat every take as a rehearsal for the next take. And I just keep doing it until it's taken away from me. And I think that's true with writing too. You just can keep rewriting until it's taken away from you. And sometimes taken away from you means the day of filming. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like you're done writing mm -hmm. at that point. Yeah. Been taken away from you and sometimes taken away from you means like you can't afford to pay your editor anymore <laughs> you know like <laughs> and it's it, the editing is t now taken away from you or you can't afford to be in sound design any longer or you have a deadline for um a festival or premiering the film in theaters and you have to meet you know like these are things that take it away from you and that's why you got to leave it all on the table with the time that you have. And this is even true with life. You know, you got to, if you got people you love in your life, you got to love them. And you got to give them everything that you have while you have it to give. And it's really about aligning yourself to live in that way. And the same is true with your work. When you're making it, you better be aligned to give it everything that you've got because you're not going to get forever to do it. But you should do it until it's taken away from you. Yeah, that's smart, man. That's totally smart. And when you when you think about, I think a lot of audience members really just don't take that into consideration. And it's really not their job to take that into consideration. But when you watch a film and you see the finished product, and uh, more often than not, you watch a product that you're like, man, this could have been better. Or this could have been more interesting. There are a hundred fucking reasons why uh, the movie ended up being what it was. And like you said, sometimes it's taken away from you. You never really think about you know, hey, look, my editor, I'm paying this motherfucker every day to be here. So uh, we're out of money. <laughs> yeah. It's fascinating when you think about it that way. I um, mean, it is, but you know, there no one's supposed to think about that but you. Yeah, I know. It's true. That's the work, you know? Like, I would always say that even when making Flinch, I'd be like, yo, we don't get to put it like on the screen, like 
hey, we were supposed to do this or, you know, like, <laughs> you, don't, you, don't, you don't do that. Like, that's not, that's not it. That's not the game. Yeah, no, it's true. It's totally true. It's a, it's a, it's a fun job, but it's like, it's fucking thankless sometimes, which is fucking really interesting. Yeah. Well, I think when you do it right, you get the thanks. Yeah. Yeah. And by do it right, what do you mean? Like live the life the right way or make the movie the right way? I think make the movie the right way. Like even with Flinch right now, like we're getting tons of positive response from people online. Mm-hmm. You see it. It's interesting now with technology because everything is on social media now, you know, like, so you got all these like movie pages that are posting scenes from the movie and people are commenting like, oh, I love it. Love that movie. Oh my God, fire. And of course, other people are like, oh, what the hell? I didn't like that movie, you know, but <laughs> like, but you, you know, I'm seeing so much positive comments. That's the thanks. You know, like when, so, when, when I like, I know that there are people that are enjoying this film and sitting down and having an experience and coming away and like finding the need to message me on Instagram or something. Be like, yo, I loved that. Like, oh my God. You know, like that's the thanks. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's cool how we can get that gratification at this point. And sort of that direct hit from the audience members. It's a double-edged sword too because those motherfuckers can cut hard too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, man. But uh, it's cool. Well, with Flinch, Flinch looks like it's going to be a great movie. I haven't seen it yet, but I've seen all the trailers and I'm excited to watch it. Um, it because, it, like I said, it falls in that genre that I love so much, uh, crime movie genre. And for for you, why why was this the the story for your first feature? Well, I, like you, love crime movies. I love the genre. Um, all my favorite movies are crime movies. And, you know, in the process of me finding my voice, after Tragedy Girls, I really was like, okay, I'm ready to direct, but what am I going to do? Who am I? All that. Yeah. And um, it's really landed on on this space. And I knew I wasn't going to have a huge budget, so I wanted to do a little compact crime thriller, mm-hmm. you know? And that's... That was kind of where it started. That and the two central characters. I had these, this idea about a hitman who lives with his mother, which I loved. <laughs> um, and so I started building from there, you know. And that's how it, that's how it started. It's it's looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. And like I was saying initially, uh, the casting on this is ridiculous. Walk me through the casting process because you. Well, actually, let's let's start a little bit earlier than that. So you write a script, and then you uh, go out and find funding it for you on your own, right? So you produce this whole thing. Yeah. Wow, dude. Yeah, myself and a couple other producers involved put the money together, um, and because I had produced films before this, I had some relationships. I was able to use them for my first feature as a director. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I had the script and put the money together. And I didn't have all the money when I started, which I didn't have all the money when I started on Tragedy Girls either. Sometimes you got to do that. It's like really, really weird, but you like step out in faith. It's like Indiana Jones stepping on the bridge in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> it's true. And I've heard this story multiple times from larger from larger films too. Some like, uh, you know, quote unquote studio indies. It's the same deal where it's like, Oh, the funding's not there, but like, let's get started. And you're just like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's really one of the great arts of producing to, to roll like that. It's, 
it's it's weird it's um yeah it's like it's a, that's a producing art uh having that type of <laughs> it just seems like you probably have stock in antacid at that point it's like how many tums are you throwing in there every day i mean dude it's it definitely takes a toll physically the stress but you, you know look you can't again that's where the art comes in is it's not about being reckless like i'm sure there's plenty of stories of those who just went out recklessly and started filming something and, and just were not able to finish i don't do that mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. when i start something I have a path to completion. I just haven't secured every aspect of it yet. Like <laughs> you, you know, it's it's not it's not entirely crazy. Right, 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 right. Because if it was entirely crazy, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. Right. Like the movie wouldn't be finished. You know, exactly. right you know the deal it is time to give thanks to the men and women that make the show possible i'm talking about the sponsors first up good friends over at puget systems if you are a filmmaker looking to build a brand new edit system if your older edit system just isn't cutting it you're getting that fucking pinwheel of death every time you try to run something out even worse anytime you try to open a folder drives me crazy uh i suggest you build yourself a pc Oh my god, he said a PC. Yes, a PC. This isn't the early fucking 90s. PCs don't crash like that anymore. Uh, The thing I've always loved about the PC marketplace is essentially they're custom-built little heart rods to do exactly what you need them to do. There's this trend in electronics that still exists, whether it's with phones or computers from certain larger companies, where in order to make them stable, they cut out all of your options. This is the specific hardware that we have a deal with right now. This is a specific uh, graphics card that we're in bed with right now. This is the only thing that you're going to have choices for when you buy one of our stuff. I hate that shit. It's a tool. I wanted to do exactly what I needed to do. Build yourself a PC. Now, I know you're sitting at home going, I don't know how to build a PC. I don't have the fucking time to build a PC. And if I build my own PC, then there's no customer support for it. I understand. I was there years ago and I did the hard work for you. I found this company called Puget Systems. And when I found them early on, they really were supporting other businesses. They were really after different markets. And when we talked about the filmmaking market, it just exploded. These guys decided that they're going to build custom-made PCs based upon the software you use. And what's great about Puget Systems is that they're not a manufacturer. They don't actually build hardware so they're not going to pedal off pieces of hardware on you these guys have done all the hard work benchmark tests research does this new graphics card actually work with the newest version of premiere does this older graphics card work better these guys do it all and they post all of their stuff on their website puget systems so if you go to pugetsystems.com there you can also order a brand new system based upon baseline Uh, packages so they start you with something simple and they go here's an idea here's a baseline package he's like a Genesis 2 or whatever they call it these days and then they want you to customize it they want to hear from you they want to know what it is that you're doing and if you're doing it right you're technically breaking the rules of how it's supposed to be done I always say this about any of my edits 
I usually have some sort of technical problem with, with my edits because I'm breaking the rules. I'm not just doing them in the, the simple, basic, phone-in-in way. I've only got uh, five tracks of video, and I'll do a couple of L cuts here. And No, 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 no. It's always mixed formats, mixed mediums, all sorts of shit. My fucking timelines are a mess. <laughs> but I like it when my hardware can keep up with me. So when I picked up my Puget Systems, I'm actually on one right now, uh, these things stay with me. So they run hard. They run hot and they run hard and they stay with me as I'm putting them through their paces, trying to create something that has never been done before. And if that's the kind of artist you are and you need to have a tool that supports your art, I highly suggest you go to PugetSystems.com. Also supporting the show, as always, are our good friends over at Quasar Science. I talk about this all the time, how great the advancements in LED lighting have been for our business, right? They've changed a lot. You can do a lot with a lot less now. You don't need to have generators to do a lot of stuff. You have this gear that makes things easier. Now, that being said, does it make a production cheaper? And here's a note for you producers listening to the show. Just because this gear says it's easier and it's faster doesn't mean it's cheaper. Just because you have a Quasar tube doesn't mean you, do, you don't need to hire a fucking gaffer to use it, <laughs> right? You don't need a key grip to create shadows in front of it, right? To control it. So like wash that idea out of your head. But if you are in the market to buy some new gear, if you want, to get some new lighting uh, units for your kit, highly suggest you go to Quasar Science. Quasar creates well, per like perfectly put together, well balanced LED units. So they have like their bicolor tubes, they have their rainbow LEDs, they have a bunch of new stuff that's coming out. It's been a while since I've been to the website. I have to look at all the new shit that's going on. And that being said, I actually have to go visit those guys this week. Um, so go check them out. Go to quasarscience.com. Uh, there you will find some of the best LED light units in the business. Stuff that's really going to excite you. And uh, I don't know if they're selling directly off their website, but I'm sure they'll, they'll have referrals to their retailers. But the place to go to check it all out is Quasar Science. Check them out on Instagram. It's an easier way. I know a lot of you guys don't like to go to websites. You young kids are like, websites are for the old guys. <laughs> then check them out on Instagram. Uh, I think it's at Quasar Science. All right. Also supporting the show are our good friends over at Movie Tees. That's M-O-V-I-T-E-E-S.com. Movie Tees is the place to go if you're looking to get apparel, movie apparel, nerd apparel. If you want to get that shirt that you walk on set to and the director that you're working for looks at you and goes, I know that fucking movie. That's a great shirt. I'm telling you, the thing that I love about Movie Tees is that they have designed apparel around the corporations that show up in our favorite cult movies, right? So Nakatomi Towers, what movie? We do this on every episode, right? You know the deal. Head on over there, and we have a great coupon code for those guys. Use the coupon code below. Get a sweet deal on the T-shirts. They're incredibly affordable as it is, and I'm sitting here right now in my Outpost 31 shirt. So what movie is that? Love these guys. It's one of my favorite finds. And I'm telling you, I'm so pumped that I got them as a sponsor because I literally wear one of their shirts every other day of the week. 
So don't know what I'm talking about? Go to M-O-V-I-T-E-E-S dot com and see. Now, if you want to support the show personally and you don't want to reach in your own wallet, and if you haven't done this yet, so if you haven't done this for another podcast, you can sign up for a free trial at Audible. I think it's audibletrial.com backslash love of the process. The link is below the episode. In the description of the episode is the link. Whenever I say the link is below the episode, I just assume that you guys understand how shit works. It is in the description of the episode. Or if you're at inlovewiththeprocess.com, you'll find it there as well. But if you sign up for a 30-day free trial at Audible, you'll get a free audiobook. You get access to all their audio content for 30 days. And we get paid. After 30 days, if you can't afford it, you got to leave. No big deal. We still get paid, but you're probably going to want to stick around. I have been listening to a ton of books on Audible. That is how I'm getting all my content these days. Um, what am I, I just finished up the sleep study book, which I thought was fucking great. Really has changed the way I sleep. Um, and I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to read next. Honestly, if you guys have any suggestions, send me some, some uh, send me some suggestions on Instagram. Also, let my mouth know how to fucking do its job. Send me suggestions on Instagram. What are you guys listening to? What is a great book that I should listen to? Because I'm not reading right now. I'm just listening. Um, and for those of you who want to join in with us, like I said, get a free trial. Audible. All right. That's it. Let's get back into it. Cameron's got a lot more to talk about. We're going to get deep into the movies that we like from crime cinema. So how did you, uh, so when did you start casting? Did you start casting prior to getting all your funds or were you casting after you got the funds? Cause that's the game. It's the chicken or the egg fucking game, right? Like, right, right. Um, yeah, I started casting when I had most of the funds, at least what I thought was most of the funds at the time. Cause the movie kept growing along the way too. Nice. Um, but yeah, the first person that I wanted that I knew I wanted was, uh, Buddy Duress. Um, from Good Time. Mm-hmm. I'd seen him in Good Time, and I just thought that guy was awesome. So I wanted him to play a villain in my movie. Um, I thought, I was like, this guy's one of the great crime actors. Like, you know, just like a, he could totally be a great villain. <laughs> so I, went, I met with him and got him on board, which wasn't hard. Uh, and he, you know, he was a trip, buddy. And then I went to Zavato next for the lead role of Doyle. Yep. And got him on board. He's great, uh, by the way. He was fantastic in uh, It Follows and uh, even Don't Breathe. He's, he's, he's fantastic, too. He is fantastic. That guy is a movie star. Yeah. Uh, he's got it all. He's got, the, he's got a vibe that's just like really special, but he's also just a great actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after him, the mom came on, Kathy Moriarty. Legend, yeah. Legend. <laughs> just a, you know, just a simple get. <laughs> She's a fucking legend, man. Her her bit yeah. in, um, what was that, Raging Bull, right? Her bit in Raging yeah. Bull is amazing. Yeah, she was nominated for the Academy Award for that. I mean, she's great in it. Yeah. Um, she's done so much great work. So then got Kathy, and then got Tilda, 
who was repped by Zavada's agent. He suggested her. I met with her. She was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then rounded it out, you know, uh, Stephen Bauer, Tom Segura. I, the Tom Segura story is we were, we were shooting already, and we didn't have that role cast. Um, and I was with my casting director, and we were like, okay, who are we going to cast? We were looking at options, and, and I said to her, I said, let's get a comedian, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be a cool role for a comedian. She suggested Tom Segura. I was like, that's a great idea. And he agreed to do it. <laughs> He's, uh, well, to give you a bit of insider info, I think that's first how I heard about this movie, because obviously I'm a fan of their show, and I've, I've worked with Tom. I actually was lucky enough to direct him in a music video last year and he he's a great dude he's a great guy to work with super fucking professional i only had him for a few hours and uh his uh he was incredibly fucking is this the one where he dances this is the one no we that was we did another one for uh Zarface where it was with him and inspected deck and he dressed up as dj dadmouth we brought back we brought back his character DJ Dadmouth for it, and it's pretty pretty crazy and fun. And I ended up shooting him and Christina uh, in their spot awesome. for it, so it was a lot of fun. Yeah, he's a he's a he's a G. He's uh he's a, they have such an empire over there, and they they do it right over there. So, dude, you know, empire. <laughs> so then, uh, so then your cast was rounded out, man. And at that point, it must be you're right off to production at that point, right? Yep, full steam ahead. Fuck yeah, dude. How long was the shoot? It was originally supposed to be 18 days. Mm -hmm. Ended up being like 23 or 24 days. And then I kept going back in during post-production to shoot more stuff. So I think we ended up like a 32-day shoot or something like that. Have you guys released what the budget, are you allowed to talk about what your budget for was? No, we're not talking about it. It, It's not a big budget. Okay, yeah. No, no big deal. I'm always curious about what people do and how they're able to spread out their shoot days with how much cash they have. And then it's, you know, it just seems like a a process of being super smart on your days and like how many pages you can get done in a day and all that. Dude. Yeah. Look, time is the most valuable resource when making a film. I would, I'd rather have next to nothing, but you know, a good camera crew, the locations I need, and I'll even simplify locations and great actors and time. Yeah. Then like, you know, big set pieces or fancy, fancy locations or big name actors and no time. Time, man, like I always dream about it. Like just to, you know, sometimes you do these scenes. It may be an introduction scene or like a character's walking into a restaurant or something, you know, and you're like, well, I'd love to have like, three days to do this (laughs) you're trying to do in half a day but you're like if i had three days to do this scene man all the stuff i could do to make this scene fire um time is great ah dude i have anxiety fucking nightmares about time all all the time myself where you just sort of like and and then being someone that's prepping one right now you're sort of going through it going ah what is it what is the stuff that i could have what is the stuff I could shave off on? What is the stuff that really doesn't matter that much? It's it's hard to say that when you're reading through a script where everything fucking matters before you get shooting because it's it's time management at that point. It's like, what is the most emotionally driven sequence here? And where do I need to spend the most amount of time to draw this out of the actors that we're dealing with? You know what I mean? 
it's it's a lot of anxiety in that shit. And after doing your first feature, do you feel like you've acquired the experience to sort of quell that a bit? Or are you still in the same boat that I'm in where you have anxiety with it? I mean, I'm not like having anxiety about the next one yet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I'm sure when I'm faced with, you know, hard decisions, there'll be some anxiety involved, you know? I mean, look, even knowing, knowing that you need to fight for time is a learning, is a learning curve. Um, so just even having the education enough or the experience enough to know, like, the time you're going to need to do things is great, you know? So when you're moving into something, you can say, no, I need this much time to do this. I don't need that much time to do that. I can do this like this. Yeah. You know, you have to think like that. Yeah. Yeah, because at the end of the day, you're the one ultimately planning everything. So, and I, yeah. I, I find that through my years of uh, being just a cinematographer and working for other directors when I was younger, um, that would be the constant battle. Would be a director that really didn't have that experience, didn't understand how long it physically took to do specific sequences or or, or to to do a certain amount of setups and what it's like to turn things around in a room and how long that fucking takes. And so then if you're not careful about it as someone that's planning it, a divide starts to split amongst you and the crew because the crew's like, this fucking dude. Like, oh, yeah. Why are we shooting on the other side of the room? We just we should have shot everything that way before. We would have saved fucking three hours, you know? And That's an interesting point you bring up. And, and it's another big part of filmmaking is the crew, managing yeah. the crew, working with the crew, keeping the crew on your side, getting them to work at a pace that's efficient so you can get the most out of your days. Like you got to rally that crew. And sometimes like a crew, you know, it could turn against you. (laughs) It can happen. I've seen it happen to people. Um, So that's an, that's another really interesting dynamic of filmmaking that I I feel like people don't talk about enough. The dynamic between a director and the crew. Well, yeah, because at that point, and let's dig into it a little bit at that, it, at that point, you're supposed to be inspiring, right? Everybody's supposed to look up to you. You're the guy that's supposed to have the vision, right? You're, you're supposed to have the answers, but then you're also supposed to be a collaborator. So you're supposed to be listening and be a part of all this stuff. And then it's you have to have empathy, but then it's also a dictatorship to a certain extent. So it's this really fucking weird balancing act that you're trying to walk as a director then stack on all the stress that comes with making the movie, then stack on the amount of hours that it takes to do a movie, and then try to keep yourself focused for fucking 24 days or whatever the hell it was. You know what I mean? It's intense. Yep, it is. certainly is. What do you, um, do you find, (laughs) here's an interesting question. Do you find a rhythm during the days for when crews are most productive? Um, I don't know. Usually you set the rhythm, I think. Okay. You know, I think that you set the rhythm by like, you know, it's really amazing. Like most of the time, everyone there ultimately loves films. I mean, you got, you do get the type of crew sometimes it's just like, you know, they're like, yo, I'm here to do a job, (laughs) you know, pay me my overtime Give me my meal penalties. The salt, salty motherfuckers. Yeah, yeah. I, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm in this to make a living. I'm trying to feed my fucking family and, you know, fuck off with your vision. <laughs> you know, you do get people like that, but they're the minority. 
most of the people that I've worked with, they care. They, they love movies and they, they wanted to make films originally. And that's why they're doing it. And, you know, they'll support you. Um, it's also about support. Like a big part of your crew is your DP, mm-hmm. you know. So you have to have a crew that supports that person and cares about that person. Because a lot of them are really working for the DP, not even for you. Um, that's a big one. Uh, and then art department, of course. Um, but I don't know. Sometimes like when I was really excited and I, I felt like it was working, you know, that sort of trickles through and every, and you can feel it, um, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. Once, once shit starts to roll and 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 things at least for me with my experience when things start to really start to click and it's usually like halfway through day 2 or like maybe halfway through day 1 if we're doing great and and it starts to flow and you're looking around and everybody's sort of moving faster and they're happy to be moving faster and people are laughing in between takes and you know what I mean and people are happy to be there then everything starts to feel better there's this there's this stress that's lifted off the set cuz at least for me, the first day, especially if you're working with, and this is for commercials, like I'd walk onto a set with a union crew and I didn't hire any of these fucking people. Like I would just be a for hire going into work with these folks. And that's always the most difficult portion because you're trying to establish yourself as the director of this piece. But also I like to make sure that I'm approachable from folks. And so it's a, like the first half of the day is just going around making sure you're cool. You know what I mean? And then once everybody's once everybody finds the groove and once everybody's in it, then the then the I feel like the real filmmaking happens after that. And then you can see it too. I always say this at the afterwards when you're screening a movie and you're watching a film, I can immediately tell in a trailer whether or not the crew had a fucking good time making it. Because it, yeah. it it really comes through with the final product, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there were days that the crew unflinched did not have a good time making it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we were shooting nights the whole way through and I would just run overtime. Um, so there was, there was a lot of that, but you know what else I think really gets a crew going is when the actors crush it. Yes. Like when, when, whenever we would like just do a scene, you know, you do a take and the actors just, everything worked, you know, and like you, you got it. It's like, oh yes, let's do another one, you know. And like, the the everyone's working together. People love to work together to achieve things, you know. Like, it's one of the interesting things about us, because um, we can also be so destructive. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you know, when everyone's working together and like it works, that that does something to the crew, you know. Mm-hmm. When the actors really crush it and the scene works, everyone's like, oh man, you know, like okay, that like, like kind of pumps everyone up. That's a great feeling. Oh, I love that feeling. I love that feeling when you're sitting around and it, even if like some people can't sort of wrap their heads around the concept and then you're sitting around afterwards and you're either watching playback, or you're watching the monitor on set and everybody's leaning in, you go, okay. And then you just see, as soon as you call cut, everybody's like, got it. And they stand up and they're ready to rock. I love that moment, man. Yeah. It's a great fucking moment. Yeah. Um, so crime movies. Let's talk a bit about crime movies. Uh, what did you, what were some of your favorites growing up? What did you love? Um, growing up, I mean, obviously I loved Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. 
I think I loved Goodfellas at a younger age than most. Maybe not, but I loved Goodfellas mainly because I grew up in a um, like Brooklyn Sicilian home. Okay. Okay. My mother is from Brooklyn. She's a Sicilian woman, and her brothers. My grandmother lived with us. Her mother and her brothers were always with us, and they were just a bunch of you know Italians from Brooklyn, New York, <laughs> um, and so. You know, I grew up. The one uncle is always quoting The Godfather, like so specifically about you know every everything in life, like relates back to The Godfather in some way. You know, mm-hmm. um, and then Goodfellas is always playing, especially during the holidays. Um, so the like you know those movies, all the Scorsese movies, and and The Godfather were like were like really big for me at a very young age. My mother loved those movies. They, it's like they reminisce, they watch those movies and they reminisce about the old days of New York and what it was like growing up. And it really triggers something for their youth yeah. and their memories. Cause that's how they grew up. Yeah. And so there was always this, like there were romantic films in my family, in my home. It was like a romance. It's like, Oh, New York, you know, like those movies, like the good old, you know, so there was something romanticized about that stuff for me from a very young age. And then, um, you know, you grow up and you start learning about cinema and watching tons of great films. Um, I mean, of course, like I also grew up in the nineties. So Pulp Fiction was a big thing. Yep. Uh, I remember when I caught on to Pulp Fiction and then Reservoir Dogs, uh, those were really powerful for me. And then, you know, somewhere along the line, I like discovered the Coen brothers mm-hmm. and started watching all their stuff. And then like, I, I, I didn't originally discover their early things like blood simple, but you know, you, you see whatever it is, the big Lebowski and a couple of them. And then you're like, Oh, okay. And you watch all their stuff and you're watching Miller's crossing. Oh my God, dude. Miller's crossing is such a fucking amazing movie. That movie is yeah. phenomenal, dude. Yeah, really is. Um, <laughs> and then, and then, of course, in my education, um, I, you know, at a certain point, I started watching movies from the 40s and the 50s and noir and French New Wave and um, like just crime films from those eras and French crime films like uh, Jean-Pierre Melville and uh, Godard and um, like early John Huston movies like I think mm-hmm. it's Concrete Jungle. Mm-hmm. Treasure of Sierra Madre, um, movies like White Heat. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's just like so many great crime films. And then you're then then like the '80s stuff, like the Michael Mann stuff. Oh, sure, dude, for sure. Manhunter. Oh, I love Manhunter, and you know what I love about cinema, and what I like about Scorsese, because Scorsese is a great jumping off point. So anybody that gets into crime films usually gets into a Scorsese film. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, (laughs) it's the best. It's the best. It's good fellas. It's casino. Anything he does, even if you, you just watch the Irishman, if you're super young listening to the show and you're like, I saw this movie about a bunch of old gangsters on fucking Netflix. Uh, The thing that I love about Scorsese is that he genuinely has a passionate love for cinema, like a passionate love for the origins of cinema, for the language of cinema. And so when I got into Scorsese stuff, and I think probably Goodfellas was the first, because that was right mm-hmm. around the time when we were young. So right. uh, I think that was the first one. And I remember getting so fucking obsessed with it. And a lot of it had to do with his music selection and his voice oh, and yeah. his narration and all that stuff that I'm like, I got to fucking, 
what does this guy watch? You know what I mean? You you hit that point where you're like, oh, what is he watching? And so then you start to dig and you dig. And I remember I got obsessed with uh, the 70s stuff. And I got Mm -hmm. obsessed with like Peckinpah. Oh, yeah. And like uh, the original The Getaway with Steve McQueen. Oh, yeah. And I think Ali McGraw was, was in that with him. That fucking movie is so goddamn good. And then... Another movie that I love so much that I think I've mentioned on the show is uh, uh, Point Blank with Lee Marvin. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. It is so fucking good. And it's old school. It's it's the movie that Steven Sodenberg basically paid homage to when he did The Limey with Terrence Stamp. Hmm. And so it's... it's uh, what's that? Never saw it. Oh, so good, dude. It's like this weird... If you could take like French New Wave and put it into like seventies crime, it's it's kind of that mix of it. And like Steve McQueen stuff, like that, like the Getaway and Bullet were just a little bit more mainstream than these other two movies were. But they all had that same San Francisco crime thing going on. Which I think the mainstream movies at the time that were doing that were like the Dirty Harry movies, you know, with mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood and all that stuff. Um, but uh, I got really lost in the '70s for a while, um, and then re- a great era. oh, dude, and and then of course when you mentioned Michael Mann, I've been obsessing over Heat lately again. Oh yeah, and like watching the behind the scenes stuff for him. That movie's incredible. Oh, he's a fucking madman as a director too. Like the amount really? of research that went into Heat is yeah. insane. You know, like. How are you with your research when you do stuff like this? Are you basing your characters on people that you know, or are you are you looking for for inspiration for your characters? I mean, I definitely base them on people that I know. Yeah, um, personally, smart. At least on on Flinch, that's what I did. Um, I base most of them on people that I know. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, I do research. Like, I try to do just a lot of research on guns. Um, just because it's something that if it's not done right, it's pretty obvious, you know, and it's such a specific thing and so important to a film. It's like guns, the guns that are used, how they're shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, you know, this movie was more of a personal thing for me. I didn't like, I didn't hang out with any hitmen or anything <laughs> um, <laughs> to research it. I, I just based it off of people that I knew and, and, related circumstances to circumstances that I understood. Now, when you mentioned the the gun research, I'm fascinated by this because I've done a bunch of it myself. And what is your philosophy on uh, guns on set? Is it, uh, do you like to use blanks, like front front firing blanks? Or are you someone that composites the stuff in and post? Like, what's your philosophy on that? So, um a lot of people have commented on Flinch that they like the action sequences in the movie, which I take as a, a compliment because this is a very small movie. And I mean, you know, we didn't have much to do action sequences. Mm-hmm. And action sequences require a lot to really make them spectacular. Um, right. So I think one of the reasons why people feel satisfied with the action is because we shot all live rounds, mm-hmm. uh, quarter or full load blanks, and real squibbing. Real squibbing on the bodies and everything that's being shot around the actors was like really squibbed and set up. The walls, 
sparks on the walls, wood ripping off walls, like all that stuff was done in camera. Um, and it just adds such a texture to action that you can't fake. I completely agree with you, dude. I mean, there was like, I've done a couple small shorts with, with, uh, with uh, guns and some music videos with guns as well. And um, my whole philosophy is that when an actor picks up a weapon that is loaded with something, they hold it differently and they just react and respond to it differently. And especially if the actual gun discharges and has kickback, you can see all of that reaction. When I watch a lot of the new stuff where people are just running around with rubber guns and pew, 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 pew. And you see them, you see them like, like the recall, like the recoil, it doesn't look right. Their it's body terrible. doesn't react the same way. And it it's just terrible. looks like shit. It looks terrible. And it, at the end of the day, I feel like what it does is it, it takes away the seriousness and the gravity that comes with holding a tool like that. Cause yeah. you know what I mean? Oh yeah, when that gun shoots, you can't you can't act that. You can't act that like split second flinch for lack of a better no pun intended. <laughs> yeah. That happens when you fire a real gun. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like to act, to stay in the moment and do everything you're doing and then also like, like wince ever so subtly and like close your eyes and the kickback of your hand. Like that good luck acting that, you know what I mean? Like Exactly. And it, you know, those of you listening to the show, I'm not necessarily a gun freak. I don't have a gun. I don't have any of that stuff. It's just that when I'm doing something like this, and I'm sure you're the same way. When I'm doing uh, a movie, I like to be, I like to have a full understanding of how everything works and how everything should feel because ultimately it's my job to convey that to you as the audience. So, Well, look, this goes back to, here's another, I mean, I just like real props for actors. I think it's, it's I think it's the greatest thing ever. Like when we were doing that movie, took in, I'm on set and there's a scene where they're bringing in coffees for everybody, right? Some moment that, you know, whatever, in this new script that they were using, <laughs> they bring the coffees in and the actors are doing a take and the coffees aren't even full. There's nothing in these cups. They're, they're empty coffee cups from Starbucks or whatever. Ugh. And I'm like, yo, let's put some, let's put some coffee in here. You know what I mean? Like they look fake. You, the actors are holding them and talking. They does that, you know, and, and I'm like brushed to the side. Like, no, you know, we're not like, why would you not put real coffee in the fucking <laughs> cup? You know, it's going to make it better. I mean, like some of the best acting comes out of like, you know, look, Brad Pitt does this all the time. Brad Pitt's always eating things. Yep. He's always doing things, real things. And it, it, it's smart. Yep. You know, it's smart to work with real props um, and to give yourself real things to do. And a gun when you're making a movie is a prop. Yep. You know, so why the hell would you not want that thing to fire? Right. It's funny you bring up Brad Pitt because I feel like he got a lot of his tricks from Steve McQueen. And if you go back and you look at, uh, like, I think it was The Magnificent Seven, there's this infamous scene where there's a medium shot and all the characters. So all, I think, who else was in it? Matthew Vaughn. There were a bunch of people that were really big at the time in this movie and they're all riding horses to this medium shot right they all like clop through and it's a long shot so you it, you basically meet each one of these characters and steve, steve mcqueen does this bit where he's on the horse and he just takes his hat off bends down and scoops up a little water and throws it on his hair as he passes and he steals the fucking show 
And I, I think I saw an interview with one of his co-stars, and they were just like, "That motherfucker!" <laughs> yep. Like he killed he he killed that moment and took it from all of us because he knew how to use his props correctly. He knew how to uh, get the audience to identify with something basic. You know, just sitting there going, I know what it feels like when water splashes across your face. I know what it feels like when there's actually hot coffee in this fucking coffee cup. And so the more that you can give actors something physical to do, uh, it, which seems so simplistic in nature, but I don't know how many sets I've been on where where actors just don't have a fucking thing to do, where they're like, what do you want me to just stand here and spit out lines? It just doesn't, it doesn't flow correctly, right? Yeah, no, what you're saying is so true. Um, I'm a member at this institution called the Actors Studio. Yep. And I, I've done a lot of studying there and spent a lot of time there early earlier on when I moved to LA. And I remember um, Mark Rydell, the director, would moderate there. He's a great director. Mm -hmm. He would always say, acting is doing. You have to be doing. And even if it's the simplest thing, like eating an apple, you know, whenever you're doing something, the more you're doing, the more, the more, and, and to do it honestly and do it well and, and really do it, it's like the camera loves it. I love, I agree, man. And then the trick is because you, you, you brought up a great point where, you know, Brad Pitt eats something in most of his scenes and it's, it's genius. Then the trick as a filmmaker is to make sure that you're not just using that as a trick. It's like, okay, so, you know, in Kill Bill at the end when he's making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, what does that fucking mean? You know, and like if this person is going to be, you know, reaching into a bag of popcorn and chopping on it while delivering the sequence, what does it say about that character? You know, I think that's the next step to making something not only just realistic to see on screen, but also... Uh, add to the themes or add to the character's story or backstory. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. And I think that's where a lot of the talent of an actor or a director comes in. It's You have infinite choices to make. What choices are you going to make mm -hmm. to better tell your story? You know? Mm -hmm. So I agree with you. Yeah, it's, you got to, you know, choices. And for you, when you're prepping a movie, so you, you're getting to the point where a script's greenlit, you have your, your talent ready to rock and you're sitting down and doing your prep. Are you a shot listy kind of prep guy? Or are you, are you deep into it with the wardrobe folks early on? Like what's your prep like? Um, yeah, I definitely shot list and try to storyboard as much as I can. Uh, so I do all those things and I try to give everyone attention, I have ideas for everything, wardrobe, and you know, the look of the movie and locations, uh, all that stuff is, it's all important. Um, I like to rehearse. I definitely like to rehearse. I don't like to go into filming and not having had rehearsed. I enjoy theater. I enjoy refined acting when, you know, I like a big master where multiple actors can come into a space and, one throws their keys down and then goes and fixes themselves a drink while the other's taking the coat off of them and hanging it for them and then meeting them over at the sink and it, whatever, you know, like when, when, when you're really as an actor and a director working on a scene, you find things when you rehearse. Yeah. And I don't want to be forced to find it while I'm paying 
a hundred thousand dollars an hour to accrue. Um, I'd rather find it before and then bring it in to the day of filming. And then guess what? If things change, then that's okay. We'll roll with it. But you know, you're also going to find a lot of, I like that. I really like to do that. We did rehearse before flinch. I would like to even do more rehearsing if I can, but I, I like to spend my time there for sure. Understanding how the can and also the camera, the blocking, the camera's a, you know, a player in the blocking too. Yeah, of course. Part of it. The actors are moving around and you're finding where the, how they move through the space, the blocking. I love blocking. Yeah. Um, and good blocking is a thing, you know, and, and the camera moves with everybody. And I like to try to find that stuff. Well, what's your, what's your process of rehearsing? Do you like to rehearse on the sets or do you get everybody together somewhere else and then just sort of read through the sequence and, and rough it out? Like what's your process? Um, on Flinch, we, we rehearsed, all the stuff that takes place in the house, we rehearsed it in the house um, early on, mm-hmm. like before, like a week before filming we started, or maybe two weeks before filming we started doing rehearsals. We we did several days, maybe like five days. Um, I I would like two weeks minimum, ideally, you know, just to get the whole cast together beforehand. And, and I think that I think that the way to rehearse is. You know, first you sit down and you read the script together. You read it again and again and you, you play it. And then maybe you stand up, try things. Then you bring the props in. And then you start working with props um, and see how the props feel on you while doing – you know what I mean? Like that, you mm-hmm. just – you do it that way. You let it grow organically. And sometimes actors are immediately up on their feet and trying things and other times they're not. But, yeah, I like, you know. But I came up in the theater, so I, I do like that stuff. And I feel like I know how to work within it. Uh, well, I appreciate you sharing that because it's a, it's such a... And this is what I like about the show is that I get to talk to other directors because it's, it's very rare when directors and directors get to hang out. Um, but yeah. I like that theory of it because I've heard two different sides of it, right? You've got that side of it where it's like very much stage... Let's work this thing out. Every time we do it, it gets better. And then you have sort of like the Ridley Scott side of it where he's like, I don't fucking rehearse. He's like, I always get pissed off when I'm rehearsing and and I don't have, and something beautiful happens and I wasn't rolling on it. Um, And then I just recently saw a post from uh, Guy Ritchie who does this thing, which I'm sure other people do, but he does this thing called black boxing where he'll bring in his whole cast and then there's like five fucking cameras and they'll just roll on on a... rehearsal slash table read but it's not even table read because they're all standing and sort of blocking out the entire script which is fascinating um i I find it interesting for me because i just want to get over that sort of the first time you hear someone hear your lines from a script it's always really fucking awkward and you're like okay how do we make this real how does this become a real thing and uh, you know i think that's the benefit of rehearsals for me where it's like can we just get old? i'd rather not have that awkwardness happen in front of a crew in front of fucking cameras i'd yeah. rather figure this out of course quietly, not you know no you bring up a great point and i didn't even touch on that which is another great part of rehearsing is finding the the language of it all um you know that's a big part of it too when the actors put the words in their mouths and start saying them you can find and change things there yeah um outside of the blocking physicality of a scene. So absolutely. That's a great point. Yeah. 
And it's always the last thing you that you're talking about, like with your producers or whoever. I mean, you're producing your own stuff, so <laughs> you can argue with yourself on how much time and how much money you have. But oftentimes when I'm working on projects, it's like, yeah, we didn't really have much time for rehearsals. And I'm like, how the how come not? This is the cheapest fucking thing to do. Well, it's so true, man. And, you know, I got to say a lot of it. I don't know if it's the actors or, the, or their agents, but like there is this really weird thing in Hollywood where it's like, okay, it's fucking, it's gotta be the agents, you know, because you go to like, okay, you're like, all right, this actor's gonna be in the movie, you make the offer. And they're like, all right, you got 20 days and two days of pickups. You know, if you're smart enough to even ask for pickup days mm-hmm. and they're like, that's it. And it's this much. And you know, if you go over, it's that much. It's like, you know, you, you got, like try to hold you to these these crazy schedules and so many actors are so like their schedules are so busy and it's like you know it's not how you do it like you got to come into this and just be like all right look we're gonna rehearse for two weeks leading up to this movie and then we're gonna shoot it for however long we're gonna shoot it and then if i need you for pickups like be available within reason. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's how it should be done. But they want to charge you for the rehearsal days, like their shooting days, and it, it just you know it's like it's where the fine, it's where like the business end, you know, butts up against the creative end. And I'm not saying everyone's not cool. There's a lot of actors that are cool. And even agents that are cool that are, that I'm sure like, yeah, we can do it, you know. But like I have definitely tried to do rehearsals on a, a few projects before and, and I, I would come into that issue with the agents and like paying them for rehearsals and, and your schedule's tight. You're like, you know, on these movies, you're like, you're like, okay, well, I need them. I know I need them to be there when we're shooting, but I'd like to have two weeks beforehand, but I'm not going to get two weeks. So, okay, I can afford like – Five days of rehearsals, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Because at the end of the day, it's like, this is only to make them look better. You know, <laughs> Like, this is only to make them better on screen, which will the ultimately agent, make you. knows, well, no, it's going to make your movie look better. So pay us. Yeah, but then also you're going to make the fucking profits <laughs> on that shit. <laughs> you, know <what> I mean? <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. Do you want uh, do you want your actor to fucking oh oh yeah you've got a long roster so you really don't give a shit either okay got it got it uh, I don't mean to sound too cynical because the truth is like just like no one's trying to make a bad movie like no one, you know everyone's worried about their careers and yeah. and I know so many agents that are cool like I really do and I've come across them and there were so many on like on Flinch honestly the agents of all the actors on Flinch were dope nice right they were really dope and everyone gave us. 110 percent and like i said i got rehearsal time on flinch which was great yeah Um, that's awesome man so i don't you know i don't mean like to complain about it too much but uh, i've also come up against scenarios where it was difficult to pull together and it's just crazy to me well yeah i I don't think we're bitching on it i think it's it's just interesting to bring it up and acknowledge it because when you understand it and you know this, so if you're going into doing a movie, you know that that is something that you should ask for. And Look, that is something that you should try to make happen. Some actors don't like to rehearse, too. I mean, I, I think I heard, uh, what's his name, who I love. Uh, what's his name? Oh, shit. What movie? Bat- New Batman. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Twilight. <laughs> Twilight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God. 
God damn it, his name just... Dude, this up. is really bad. How well, are we not remembering Gina. his name? Uh, Twilight, your, your favorite guy in Twilight. Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson. <laughs> 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 that is honestly a giant brain fart. I had to turn to my girlfriend who obviously knows his name. I mean, I don't know. I, I swear to God, I'm getting older. It's what it is, man. It's, it's the, It really is. It's the lack of sleep. He's so sharp. You know, like, anyways. Yeah. Um, you and me both, dude. <laughs> I, heard, I heard that he's not a big rehearser. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me with like the stigma that he has sort of floating around him as as an artist these days. I think that's not surprising. I don't think he's method, but you know, there's that whole, you look at him and it doesn't surprise you. You're like, okay, this guy's probably about being in the moment. Yeah. You know, I remember, I think I heard about on that movie, The Lighthouse, that like Willem Dafoe really wanted to rehearse. This could be completely, I could be pulling this out of my ass, but. I remember hearing something like sense. Like, I don't know. I thought I heard this that Willem Dafoe <laughs> wanted to rehearse and Rob Pattinson didn't want to rehearse, and that's just such interesting. You know, like you think two actors, two completely different generations, mm. uh, two different styles, and I'm not going to say like one's right or wrong. You know, um, I know what I like, but could I work with an actor who doesn't want to rehearse? Absolutely. I know how to roll with the punches. Yeah. Um, and he and, and Rob Pattinson's given some really great performances. So, you know, he's doing something right. Yeah, well, that's the fascinating part about this business is that, you know, there's two sides of it, right? There's the side that's very techy, where it's like, okay, so if I white balance a camera like this, if I do, you know, if I, if I record audio at this specific thing, there's steps that you follow that are very sort of scientific. And a lot of these things that you need to know specifically if you're a DP, but also if you're a visual director, you sort of run those things through your head. But then you have to swap your brain pattern out for for breathing, organic, <laughs> emotional individuals that don't come with a instruction manual. And there is a thousand different ways to get a great performance out of anybody. And so then the trick ultimately seems like, how do I take his style and her style and this person's style and then... I don't want to say manipulate, but how do I mix them all together to be able to get what I need out of the sequence, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You sounded wounded with that. <laughs> oh, no, I was, I'm just thinking. <laughs> I'm just thinking. Yeah. Well, as an actor yourself, what do you like from directors? I mean, I think that it's nice when a director can help an actor to make choices Hmm. Um, because actors have to make so many choices along the way. And I think a good director helps them to make different choices or unique choices. It's it's nice to share choices because you can make infinite choices. And um, sometimes, you know, it's good to switch it up. It's good for an actor to, to, use a director's choice or good for a director to use an actor's choice because it makes you fresh because you know we all have our own things and styles and thoughts and behaviors and we might gravitate to certain choices again and again but when you're collaborating that's what can make something really fresh and original Mm -hmm. is when you're pulling from everyone else's choices so long as they're good right right that's a good point man that's a great point what's uh so are you thinking about what you want to do next? Are you going to stay in this crime genre? Are you going to, are you going to jump ship? Like, have you thought about it yet? 
Yeah, I've thought about it. Um, I mean, uh, everything I write kind of has a little crime element in it. I mean, I got a movie that I got. Yeah, I got one script that I love that I'd like to do next. It's like a romance crime thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I've got, and yeah, I've, they're they're all crime things. Um, we'll see. We'll see what happens next. I've been so focused on this release, but I'm starting to get back into you know the the framework of okay, what am I going to do next? What's it going to be? Um, and I'm sure pretty soon here I'll be full steam ahead on something. Yeah. I mean, the thing I've always, I think traditionally with all the crime films that I enjoy and the ones that I enjoy the most aren't necessarily the biggest, you know, you start getting into like big, big gangster movies like Scarface and stuff like that. They're great. But the stuff I really enjoy about the best crime movies is the opportunity that they often give the filmmaker and the viewer to share a very intimate, stressful moment between two characters. And I've always loved that about this genre is that even though it's surrounded and the stakes seem really fucking high, it always comes down to like that moment in a dark room between two characters and whether there are guns involved or even if there aren't guns involved. And it's just two people looking at each other, dealing with a decision under like the most stressful situation possible. You know? Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, I'm just thinking about what you said. I mean, we look, you know, I, I always think about like, why do we like crime films? Why do we relate to criminals? Because I relate to criminals and I like them as characters. Um, I think it's because we have all got it in us, you know, and I think crime is <laughs> an interesting thing because there's a certain point at which you commit crime for the betterment of yourself or your family, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it can also be corrupting. It can like corrupt the soul. I don't know. I don't know why we love criminals, but we certainly all love them. But I like the big ones too. I mean, one of my favorite performances ever is Al Pacino in Scarface. Yeah, he's amazing. I think that's one of the great performances. He's absolutely amazing. And and the thing about this genre is that it can play both ways. You can go huge. You can go heat level, you know, and have like a fucking ridiculous front-firing uh, gunfight sequence downtown Los Angeles. But, you know, some of the best moments, although that gunfight scene is fucking amazing. Uh, but some of the best moments in that movie are like those quiet little moments that are had too. So it's, it's such a fascinating medium, um, where I don't necessarily think that money makes the movies better. I think money just makes the movies different. I think when you see an indie done really well, that's a crime movie, it can stand up right up against Scarface. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, and then I even think about like Japanese crime cinema. I love it, dude. Hong Kong crime cinema, you know, like there's just like oh. they do it, they do it so well, you know. Oh. Um, Dude, what you know? I don't know. It's, it's it's. I think a lot of it is a masculine thing too. Yeah, I, have. I There's something in us as men that like. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, it's got to be because. I grew up, I didn't, I was an only child, but I had cousins and like, we were like, they were like my brothers and sisters, but like 
the girls didn't like the, the shoot 'em ups the way I did. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and they still don't. Like, my girlfriend wants to watch Friends <laughs> at the end of a long day. Yeah, you know? it's true. It's true. It's true. And, and I want to watch Beat Takeshi movies. I fucking love his movies, dude. I was going to bring them up. Yeah. You know, Violent Cop, fucking. Oh, yeah. <sighs> dude. Dude, his stuff, and he's such a fascinating actor in those films, director, actor, and his like Robert De Niro esque, gentle, yeah. gentle face. He's almost he almost has like this, like wounded dog face, and the murderous energy that comes out of him that he's able to like. I love it. Oh my god! I, lo- I love how he. I love the way he does next to nothing. Yeah, totally. one shot. I don't remember which movie of his it's in. Um, he's just driving in a car in the back, sitting in the back. He's being driven. Mm-hmm. The camera just holds on him, and he's got his one eye like twitches, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And he's just looking off, dead, into just out the window or something. And the the eye is just twitching, and there's just that's it. It's just so good. It's such good acting, you know. Oh. It's very De Niro. It is. It is. He's very much De Niro, and it's very De Niro. He has killed that. He's so good. He hasn't been able to really crack it here in the U.S. Like I think the last thing he was in was the remake of Ghost in the Shell, which was the fucking reason I went to see it because he was in that, and I was like, holy fuck. Uh, But uh, his and his movies are so, for at least for American traditional audiences, they're very slow, but they're really just about building. And it's this build, this build and energy that he does, even in like his performances where he just twitches and he's got that eye thing, which is like, is, is that him acting or did he have a stroke at one point? Well, he did have a stroke at one point in his life. Okay. All right. The right side of his face is dead to a certain extent now. Wow. Um, but it wasn't always like that. He, I know that he had a motorcycle accident. That's that's badass. Uh, <laughs> the the yeah. dude just breathes badass. He always has. Oh, the guys, the guy. But also, it's so amazing too because his he started off as a comedian on Japanese television, mm-hmm. right? And like, I don't know if you've ever seen like what Japanese TV looks like, like comedy wise. It's bad shit. <laughs> Bro, it's the most lowbrow, like. You know, it's kind of like the only thing that I know that's similar to it is like Mexican comedy. Like, and I hate to be bashing on, but like, and I'm sure like they, they might look at some American sitcoms and just go, what the hell is this nonsense? You know, but like, <laughs> yeah. dude, have you ever seen like some of the Japanese stuff where they're, they're like, you know, one dude comes out in a diaper and like another dude comes out <laughs> yeah. dressed like a Teletubby and then like. <laughs> You know, they like run across like a spinning wheel and then fall into like a, a pile of mud and like a bunch of <laughs> Japanese women just giggle and laugh at them. And like the graphics on the screen are like, you know, like it's, just, you know, it, like that's it. Like it's, it looks so crude. It looks like they shot it on like the, the, the simplest video camera. <laughs> like, and, uh, and he, that, he, that's where he came from. You know, so he, he, like when you, wa- I went back and watched some of it because I really wanted to see like, and it was just, you know, he was the straight man, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, but it's, it was just like, you know, it's like three video cameras shooting them on a stage, just doing the most random thing. It's like not cinema at all. It is just television at like video production. Um, 
and 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 they look they love it you know they love that type of comedy <laughs> and that's where he came from but yet like he went he did that and then he went off and made gangster films like high class cinematic gangster movies and violent gangster movies violent. very violent fucking yeah, gangster they're movies. beautiful and they're great to look at and they're well composed and they're they're cinematic and that that's just so cool to me that like it's it would literally be like my best comparison to it would be if like jake paul went and made a masterpiece of a movie <laughs> you know <laughs> like it was some if some fucking Twitch streamer, <laughs> were like who just twitches all day themselves, like, hey, pay me twenty bucks, I'll eat a bowl of spaghetti with hot sauce right now, you know, like, <laughs> and then like just made a movie and it won can. You made a fucking thought piece. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that type of thing is kind of what Beat Takeshi did, in my opinion, yeah. back in the eighties in Japan. Yeah, and he, I, I remember he came out of nowhere for me. Because uh, you know those movies really weren't marketed to us no. at, when we were younger, and then we I had think, to discover him. Yeah, someone brought it, something into the house, and I was like, "What the fuck is this?" And we just got deep into it, and I'm like, "This dude," because oh. you 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 get entranced by him. He has this ability of just sort of putting you in this trance. Oh and, yeah, and taking you down, and the fear. But Japanese that, crime in general. I mean, like you also got the the oddballs like what's his name Takeshi Mike. Oh yeah, his stuff is crazy crazy but even when he does like a little bit more straight line stuff like i always botch the name like hottie Kadi, i think it is yes yeah 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 i'm not gonna be able to say it either but yes um like you know that guy's dope and he's he's a crime filmmaker and then like you got the old japanese crime stuff too uh what was that one tokyo drifter dude totally there's a big i, I think i talked about it on the last episode Criterion right now, so if, like uh, I'm subscribed to the Criterion channel, and they're doing a whole um, sort of uh, program of Japanese noir, and so like Tokyo Drifter, amazing movie, um, Stray Dog, another yeah. really great one, Youth of the Beast, uh, Rusty Knife. They're doing like all these really great old school noir stuff. Well, I, that's awesome, and I got to check all those out. Um, it it definitely comes from the samurai tradition too yeah totally you know and, and look a lot of crime in america i think comes from the western tradition yeah uh, yeah so in the samurai film and the western like there's something there's something like so similar between those two so yeah. it makes sense that they crush but i mean look hong kong action movies crime yeah. movies like john woo and chow yun fat and like chow yun fat movies were the shit and i remember i remember like getting deep into them when I was a kid, what was the first one I saw? I think I saw Hard Boiled, which was like the big John Woo. Yeah. Like at, like epic, like top of the line uh, John Woo thing. And then going back to The Killer. And then uh, even when he came back here, uh, when he came across the ocean and he was over here in, uh, what was it? The Replacement Killers, which was, what's his name that did that? That was okay. There was a bunch of really great ones that Chow Yun-Fat was doing here in the U.S. as well. Yeah, he did. Uh, yeah, he did some. I didn't really watch too many of his American movies. I saw. I've, I mean, I've retroactively gone back and watched most all his stuff that he did with John Woo, and even outside of the things to do with John Woo. And but he was like, he was like the Cary Grant of fucking of action stars. Like that guy he's, he's had like badass. this. I love the way he does it. I just so cool. Doesn't doesn't matter what a million shots being shot at him. You know, he's just, he's just got this cool air about him every moment. It's like movie star shit. Well, um, 
And then that's the John Woo thing, which a lot of folks don't realize that John Woo was huge into uh, ballroom dancing. And so like all those giant action sequences, slow-mo action sequences were dance sequences for him. And that's kind of how he designed out that that entire thing. And it really created a whole subgenre of the crime scene, of the crime uh, movement, you know? I mean, Hong Kong cinema does crime so well. And also, what's his name? Uh, Wong Kar Wai. And like oh, the, the way he does stuff, like it's like so moody and character driven. Um, probably a little bit more similar to like the tone of Flinch. It's just like, it's not about the action. It's more about the people. Uh, but it has such a great vibe and a mood that's just like, you just feel it. Um, that's an interesting point. And as a director, I'm always trying to sell this. For me, it's all about vibe and mood more than anything else. It's like you have to have a great script. You have to have a good skeleton of a movie. You have to have a good story to tell. But for me, I the movies that I always go back to and the movies I watch like fucking 30, 40 times are because of vibe and tone. And do you agree with that? And if that's the case, are you conscious about setting your vibe and tone? And is it one of the most important aspects or is it something that you just sort of find along the way? Tone, tone is huge. Tone is so huge. It's, and it's one of the hardest things to execute successfully because you've got to keep it constant. And it's hard to do because you're showing up every day. Like, so how do you continuously reset and keep a tone? And you have a lot of things that help you to do that. Music, you know, mm-hmm. um, a color palette and stuff like that. But like, yeah, tone is big, man. Tone is tough and you can like tone is so nuanced and like you can change tone. And if you change tone, like un- non-deliberately, it's bad, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, you know, like, yeah. So, I mean, I'm trying to think like, is that the most important thing? I mean, I, you know, maybe it is. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the most important thing is. Um, well, it's certainly an important one. Yeah, and I mean, I guess it's hard to phrase it as being the most important thing because everything's the most important fucking thing. It depends on your perspective on it. But like when you're thinking about, at least when I'm thinking about a movie, and this is something that I've been talking to the guys that I'm making a movie with. When I'm thinking about a movie, I want, and, and it's a movie that I go back to watch again and again and again. I go watch Goodfellas for specific scenes and for the tone, like yeah. ultimately. And like I'll put in Die Hard for the tone in specific scenes. So I, true. I don't put in Die Hard for the fucking story. You know, that's I know so, the fucking story. That's a great point. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. I guess it's like you don't, you know, you don't listen to your favorite songs again and again necessarily because of the lyrics. Right. I mean, they get you hooked or you might find them along the way. And I get it when you're putting together a trailer. But even trailers, I think that's kind of one of the, the problems with trailers is that they're so story specific where it's like, what's this movie about? This is a story about a guy that has this and the bump, 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 and they, they basically give everything away in a trailer. The ones that I really love are movies that have such a, a original tone, such a specific tone to them that the trailers are tone specific enough that it'll sell the fucking movie. And like, uh, what's his name? Does that really well? Like tenant, even though whether lover, lover, hate tenant, uh, you know, the trailer was a tone trailer, a hundred percent. Well, Nolan has a tone and a style, no question. Yeah. No question. And I didn't fucking understand a goddamn thing in Tenet. (laughs) Um, I don't think Nolan did. Um, 
but it's a dope movie. I mean, it's just got a style and a tone. I mean, do I like Inception more? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seemed to come, it, it came together better, you know? It totally did. But um, it's cool. Yeah. Well, dude, this has been a great conversation. I think we're kicking at the point where I should wrap this up. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but it has been really good speaking with you. I did. I appreciate your time. I can't wait to see the film. I'm going to watch it this week. Um, and uh, thanks so much for sharing on the show, my friend. Dude, thank you for having me on your show. Thank you. And and then we'll make sure to put all the links below the episode so you guys will be able to go check out the film. We'll put the trailer links, all that stuff. Definitely support the movie. Go watch it. Support independent film cinema, as always. And, you know, if you love crime movies support the genre. Let's make sure the genre stays strong. So there it is. Today's episode. Cameron's a cool dude. I dig him. I like his philosophies on stuff and, you know, uh, um, I want to say I don't know him well enough to say that I'm proud that he made his first movie but I feel like after listening to this sh- this episode and uh, being a part of this episode I can say that man it's it's I'm, I'm proud of him for fucking finishing his first movie I think that's fucking great and I think the uh, process that he went through to get to that point is fascinating um, and he seems like a humble dude so the movie I can't wait to watch it I'm going to watch it this week um, and for those of you who want to get a better understanding of the list of movies that we were rattling through, I'll try, if Liam is listening, I'll try to have everything listed underneath the episode on inloveoftheprocess.com. So if you're on the website, go to the website and we'll list all the movies. And I'll try to put up as many of the trailers as I can underneath uh, so that you guys get those references. I highly suggest you fucking sign up for a subscription to uh, Criterion. Uh, I know that I'm not sponsored by them. You're welcome, Criterion. Um, but I, they're f- fucking fantastic. And all the movies that I rattled off, Stray Dog, Rusty Knife, Youth of the Beast, Tokyo Drifter, they're all on Criterion. And uh, uh, I don't know if all Scorsese stuff is on Criterion. I was just in Barnes & Noble and I saw that they actually put the Irishman on Criterion. And I know that the young guys out there are like, well, why would you fucking watch it on Blu-ray? Because uh, it comes with all the commentaries and shit. Dumb, dumb. <laughs> it's, got all the, it's got all the good stuff on it. <laughs> Not just the movie. You know? That's where you, where you actually dig deep. And I, I'm surprised that uh, you know Netflix hasn't caught on. And I don't want them to, so don't, don't tell Netflix. Uh, but one of the things that... Uh, I love about Blu-rays is the commentaries. It's like the original, um, you know, one-on-one podcast with the director who, while watching the movie, talks you through how he did stuff or she did stuff. You know, that's really cool about Blu-rays, 100%. Uh, and any director who's worth his grain of salt is always talking about how he was listening to the commentary on one of their favorite Criterion DVDs. Or Arrow Video DVDs. There's a bunch of really great distributors out there that put out really great commentary tracks. Um, that being said, uh, I really appreciate you guys listening. 
I hope you guys have been enjoying this season. I'm in love with the process. And I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I did, you know, I it gave me a lot to think about as far as rehearsal goes. Because I haven't figured out who I am yet with that. And I think ultimately I just have to, I have to try a couple of different techniques and see which one sticks. Um, I like the idea of doing rehearsals. I don't know. I can't say if I need two weeks. I don't know yet. But I like the idea of doing it. Because specifically for that thing that I talked about on the show, which was brief, which is the fear and the anxiety of hearing the script come out of an actor's mouth the first time and it doesn't sound the way it sounded when you were reading it on the page. You know? That's the toughest part for me. Is sort of getting over that. And if you work with me, you'll see it. Some of you guys listening have worked with me in the past. You'll see how I handle that. Sometimes it's just awkward for me when I hear words come out for the first time. And I've been working on my reactions with it so that I'm a better director. But when I was younger, I would hear stuff and I wouldn't even be able to make eye contact when I heard it. Because it just, it's scary, you know? It's at that point when you're making a movie where you're kind of scared by it, you know, and you're like, I think this script's going to be fucking great. I see this movie in my head. And then you're convincing yourself every time you run through this stuff, you, you create a character in your mind and that character delivers these lines and you go, okay, this is going to be fucking cool. This is going to be great. And then I always sort of clench up and grit my teeth the first time I hear lines delivered. And it's got nothing to do with the talent of doing it. it's not whether or not the actor's good at delivering those lines. It's just the first time you're saying them out loud and you're just like, is this good? It's awkward. And that awkwardness uh, frightens me sometimes. There you go. There's a, there's a candid fucking nugget for the show. Um, But I'm cool. Like I'm fascinated with it. And I think rehearsals to a certain extent will iron that out. Um, because once you get over that, and I've, I've had that happen, where you just sort of get over that, sometimes quickly, and sometimes it takes time. Once you get over that, then everything is fucking smooth sailing. You know? Anyway, thanks for listening. I had a lot of fun on this episode. Uh, once again, thanks, Cameron, for being on the show. Uh, thank you, uh, Tom Segura and Christina P. for uh, having him on their show and talking about this movie. Once again, I'm getting a referral from from someone personal. Otherwise, I I don't think I would have heard about this film. So I hope you guys do the same thing. Definitely check it out. Rent Flinch today. I think you can rent it on uh, all sorts of different streaming services. We'll make sure to put some links below. I'm sure Amazon will have it. I'm sure Voodoo probably has it. Um, And uh, let me know what you think. Maybe we've stumbled across a brand new crime classic. Excited to find out.